Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Okay, we have an amazing episode for you guys today. But before we get going, I want to talk a little bit about the cryptocurrency markets and the Bitcoin markets. It is no surprise that these have been on an absolute tear over the last year or two. Now, a lot of people still don't understand what's going on. They don't understand how things work. They don't understand the technology or anything. And I really don't want my listeners to be left behind because I think this is revolutionary technology and there is a lot to it. So in episode 137 on my podcast, I had Marco Wutzer on and really it was probably one of the most popular episodes of the entire year. We've had so many people listen and reach out to us. Well, a lot of people don't know that Marco actually does a foundational course in cryptocurrency, in crypto space and blockchain technology and Bitcoin and everything that goes into this. I have gone through the course myself. Even though I have been in this field for five years, I still learned things myself and I really like the work that Marco does. So if you guys want to check this out, it's at expatmoneyshow.com forward slash leap, L-E-A-P forward slash leap. And you guys can check it out. It's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash leap. This program is amazing. It's really foundational. I wouldn't call it basic by any means. Someone asked me the other day, is it a basic course? No, it's not a basic course. It's a foundational course. It's really going to make it so that you know and understand all of the fundamentals of blockchain so that you can make smart decisions. You can understand how the technology works, where the direction of the market is going. Come on, guys. You don't want to be left behind in this. We've been talking about crypto for probably close to five years on this podcast. And the people who have listened and who have educated themselves have really made a lot of money. And there's still some people who are sitting on the sidelines. And I don't want that for you. So go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash leap. Sign up for the course. Learn what he has to say. Educate yourself. Personal responsibility. Take care of yourselves, guys. Take care of your family. I think it's important stuff. Okay, that's it. Let's jump into today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest has been a digital nomad for 20 years, since a very random trip to China in 2001, and his first backpacking trip to Berlin and Prague shortly after. He is currently in Bansko, Bulgaria, Europe's digital nomad hub, and maintains a flat in Prague, where he is based much of the year. He has lived in Saigon and London, and travels several months a year, visiting 73 countries so far. Awesome. 
Today, we are going to be discussing his travels and experiences in the FIRE community. Please welcome to the show, Nick Donnelly. Nick, how are you? Good, thanks. Good to be here. Happy to have you here. Why don't you kind of take a moment and walk us through your backstory? How did you get involved in the digital nomad space? Why travel? What spoke to you right at the beginning? Um, it's interesting. Like when, when I was a kid, even up to like about 20 years old, I was never really that interested in travel. And two things happened in quick succession um, that I briefly touched in my bio there. To cut a very long story short, I randomly met a Chinese girl on a train in England. The train split in half. I noticed she was on the wrong half of it. So I said, oh, you need to come and get the train because I also missed the other half. Ended up going to China for 10 days, all expenses paid for, for business reasons. And then about a month later, my friend just randomly said to me, Nick, I'm going on a backpacking trip to Berlin and Prague. Do you want to come along? And I, I'd never considered it. I had no interest in travel, but I'd, I'd just been to China at this point. And I was like, that was quite interesting. I've got nothing to do. Uh, this was around New Year's. I've got nothing to do. I'll, I'll just try it. And ever since then, I've been hooked. And so the first trip, was that based on romance? Were you <laughs> following a girl across overseas? Because I know I've done that several times yeah. myself. That's happened since, but no, that that wasn't romance. Uh, it was it was a very bizarre experience, uh, very random. And this was back in 2000 when um, China had was far less opened up to the world. And I think she was curious and I was curious, but it wasn't romance. I had a, a small software company at the time. Ch uh, family's very big in China, as you probably know, and her uncle had a software company. So there was, uh, you know, the potential of doing business there. But I went there not knowing what to expect. They didn't know what to expect from me. They thought I was far too young. I didn't know what was going on, but it, it was one of the most you know important experiences of my life at the end of the day. Yeah, China is a very, very interesting country. My wife is from mainland China. We've traveled over there ooh, 30 times. And as you said, family is extraordinarily important and everybody knows each other and they will bend over backwards to introduce you to people and show you around and help you. And it really is an amazing place and a very special place, I think. For real, it's it's almost like it's. I mean, I, I'll place a few countries in this category that they're almost like their own planets. They're so big and they have such strong culture that you go there and it's completely unique culture, completely unique experience. I think India is a bit like that. Maybe to some extent, maybe the US is like that as well. Well, the the difference with the US is that it's like a gravitational force. Like everything becomes Americanized the closer you get. So it's so different. But China is really like its own island of culture. And yes, it has some influence on other neighboring countries in East Asia, but not to the extent that US is. But when you go from the US to China, they're really like so polar opposite types of communities, people's mentality, perspective, everything is so very, very different. Okay, so that's very interesting about China. But then you did another trip in quick succession. What was that about? That was also for software? That was also meeting a girl on a train? Or where did that come from? <laughs> the, the girls thing came a bit later. Um, but no, th these trips couldn't have been more different. And they just gave me like a, a, a breadth of what travel's like. One was a business trip to a very uh, foreign new country to me. And when I went to China, I hadn't left Europe before. I hadn't been any further from England, where I'm from. I hadn't been any further than Holland or France. So that was just an amazing experience, just completely new food, completely new culture, completely new way of living. And this was in 2000 as well, just when China was just beginning to get you know super developed as, as it is now and when the Chinese people hadn't really met many foreigners I mean I, I remember um, going to Jinan on that first Chinese trip and turning around and there were 30 school kids just following me because I guess I'd never seen a white person before and then 
um, old ladies turned around and walked backwards towards me because I was a, you know, a Western devil, things like this. It was just an amazing experience and a real opener. The Prague trip and the Berlin trip, completely different. We're staying in hostels, so it was other young nomads, um, other young people who wanted to go there and travel and party, and they're in their 20s and 30s. So that one was uh, just a lot more fun and meeting people kind of similar to me, although they're from other countries. Uh, We stayed in hostels as well, so that's I didn't know what a hostel was before that. Um, But I was like, okay, you can stay in a shared room, which didn't really bother me, for five euros a night. Really? Well, that, that makes the calculation of what's possible with your life completely different because you think of staying in a foreign city in a hotel, you think, oh, that's going to cost $50 or $100 or even more than that. So I I started doing the calculations in my head of life isn't as expensive as you think it has to be. You don't have to live a life in the way that most people live it. Other things are possible. Well, yeah, absolutely. And if you are spending your money on experiences and exploring is very different than keeping up with the Joneses back home where you feel like you always need to buy more stuff and furnish a new house and all of these types of things. Exactly. And that that's kind of, you know, after those trips, that that's how I got more interested in kind of finance and financial independence and how almost everyone is, I mean, I hesitate to say doing it wrong because people are completely entitled to live their life they want to live. But I hadn't considered, I mean, I, I got into financial independence a bit later and FIRE, financial independence trial early, a bit later. Um, but I I was just going along, going with the flow, like I think most people do. I hadn't deliberately set up goals for my life in terms of finance. And I hadn't thought about which things make me happy and concentrated my resources on those. I was just kind of going with the flow. Yeah, but do you think that there's anything wrong with that? Doing, like, just going with the flow. I mean, I don't know how you were, how old you were at this time. I remember I started traveling in 2000. I was in my teen years, and for probably 10 years, I just wandered and had no aim. Now, when I look back, I can see a lot of the things I did really led me to this place. But having that opportunity just to not have many responsibilities and not think things through, I think is kind of a interesting part of your life. No, I agree. When I said going with the flow, what I mean is more quote unquote normal people just Mm. buying a house and then getting a car and then upgrading the car and upgrading the house and doing what everyone else is doing rather than thinking about it and focusing on what makes you happy financially. In terms of the traveling, then of course, just there's very few feelings in life that are as freeing as thinking, oh, I'm waking up today in Prague Maybe I'll go to Slovenia today. Maybe I'll get on a plane and go to Tokyo today. Maybe I'll go and live in Thailand. Or just, just yeah, in, in terms of going with the flow in that way, then that's that's just an amazing feeling of freedom. And yeah, I'm, I'm still doing that to some extent now, but I'm, I'm more settled than I have been in the last 20 years. I've been based in Prague for a while. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you found, as you age, you probably want to be a bit more settled. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about it a lot recently on the show, people saying, oh, you know, when you have kids, when you have a family, when you get married and things like this, you have to settle down. I disagree with that aspect. You have to settle down. I still think you can travel a lot, but certainly I traveling less now than I did 15 or 20 years ago because I was a backpacker because I was always on the go. And when you're a single guy and you don't have a care in the world, it doesn't matter. You can go anywhere. Now saying that, we still do pick up and 
get on an airplane and go to random countries just for the hell of it. It's just a little bit different experience. Have you seen that the changes in your life are because you are getting older or it's because of the environment or it's because of COVID? What are the big changes in your life with travel? I mean, obviously, COVID has put a massive curveball on things. I've still been traveling during COVID when possible and legal and when the correct countries are green and you can get a test and go in. I've visited Portugal and I'm in Bulgaria now and I went back to the UK over Christmas for a couple of months. But I'm sure I would have done a lot more traveling if it weren't for COVID. Hopefully, we will get back to more or less normal post-COVID. But yeah, I think I, I, I... perpetually traveled a lot more when I was younger. I've been living in Prague for four or five years now and not too long before that lived in Saigon for two or three years. Um, So yeah, I am staying in one place for longer now, Uh, but I've always traveled slowly. I almost always will stay in a city for two weeks, a month or something like that, unless there's not very much there, unless it's a very small place. So I've always liked traveling slowly because if every other, I mean, you meet people, especially on their first trip, who get an interrail pass and every other day they're on a train to a different country and it's just exhausting. And how much do you see? Like most of your time it's spent on the train and you, you you don't get to even see what's the top 10 things in that city that are good, let alone the top 100 things in that city that are good. But I guess people learn, you know, a lot of people travel very quickly when they start out and then, uh, then they learn, oh, I like to stay a bit longer or I like to get an Airbnb and stay here for a month or, you know, whatever it is. But everyone's different. There's no correct way of doing it. Yes, I will definitely agree with that. It is kind of interesting to watch people though, because I think that they have this mentality where it's like, I have to make the most of this and most of every single second, because it takes you a while to realize that actually this can be your life, that you can travel, that you don't have to try to rush and ram and cram everything into a 24 hour period. Like, I think the coolest part of traveling is sitting on a park bench or sitting at a cafe or something, having a drink and just kind of people watching, relaxing, watching regular people do regular things completely different than I would have back home. For me, that's really neat. For other people, they might go, wow, what a waste. You know, you're in Prague or something like that. You should be out there seeing everything you possibly can. I also think that your brain can only handle so much input. You need time to kind of relax and digest everything and let it wash over you. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I, I think this manicness comes from people that just get two weeks holiday a year. So if you've only got two weeks a year and you've spent, you know, up one, two, three hundred dollars a night on that five star hotel in Rome, and you're probably never going to get to see Rome again. Uh, there is a certain logic to just being manic and trying to do a thousand things in a week and not relaxing, even if you hate it. You can say, well, yeah, I saw, you know, the, the 17th most famous statue in Rome. And the, the, the ability to travel for an extended period of time or have some kind of financial independence where you're not so restricted gives you the freedom to just say, you know, today I'm just going to stay at home or I'm just going to sit in this park or, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is you like doing and not feel guilty about it because, you know, your, your time there isn't really restricted. I know that is an incredible feeling and one that I hope my listeners um, really clue into because if you can plan these longer extended trips to get into that state of mind, like you said, like if you just want to sit around in bed all day or you want to watch Netflix and you're overseas, it's okay because you're not trying to get the most out of every second. Once you accept that this is your life, that's when I think real magic starts to happen. That's when real change to start to happen. 
Exactly. And it sounds terrible. And maybe I even feel a bit guilty, but some of the most enjoyable days I spent traveling are just not leaving my room and just doing whatever I want. It's just, just, just have not having the stress, knowing I could go out and do whatever I want, but just, just chilling out. Ch- chilling out's underrated, I think. So talk to me a little bit about Prague. Why did you decide on that city? It sounds like you've traveled a ton of places. I'm kind of curious about your life and your experiences there. Have you been to Prague? I've not. I've oh, not. really? Actually, next year we are going, we've got a, a big trip planned. Hopefully it will be three or four months and we'll be doing of a lot of the Baltic and Eastern Europe countries. We're going to go to a whole new part of the world, which I have not had a chance to visit. So I'm super excited. Great, but don't tell Czechs they're in Eastern Europe. They get very upset for some reason, okay. even, even though I'll I love Eastern Europe. <laughs> I love Eastern Europe personally. But yeah, so if you like beer, I think Prague is the best beer country in the world. That's not the only reason I moved there. It, it's a nice factor. And before Prague, I was living in Vietnam. And I really like Vietnam as well. Um, but it, it's a long way from home. And I love Southeast Asia and I love living there. But if you're living in a tropical climate, I mean, you've, you've probably found this yourself. So you kind of miss seasons, or I did. And just, it's it's such a different life in Southeast Asia. I just wanted to move somewhere a bit close to home, a developed Western country where I could just get myself together for a few years. It's not expensive. It's a great size, Prague. It's a million people. Um, so it's big enough to have diversity and culturally interesting things, but it's small enough that um, you can get an Uber anywhere for three or four dollars, or you can usually, I could usually walk home if I've been out, or there's night tra- the public transport's great. I mean, it's obviously a stunningly beautiful city, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It's like Disneyland. Uh, my running route around my apartment is up down the river past past Prague Castle. It's just absolutely—I I have to pinch myself to believe that I live there. It's it's so stunning. So it's just it's it's an easy, relatively unchallenging, beautiful, safe place to eat. That's very easy to get around. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to spend there. Um, luckily, I managed because I'm from the UK. I managed to get in before Brexit, so I now have a temporary residence permit to stay there as long as I like for the rest of my life, which is. A huge bonus. But I'm thinking of maybe traveling a bit again, possibly moving to Bansko. We can touch on that later, uh, where I am now in Bulgaria. Possibly moving to Chiang Mai in Thailand, some of the, some of the big digital nomad hubs. But I'm not really sure yet. I don't know what, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so how was it meeting friends there, the social community? Are all of your friends expats, digital nomads? Are they locals? Is it kind of an international community? What's life like there from the personal side? That, that's a really interesting question. And, and the contrast with Southeast Asia is quite big because almost all my friends in uh, Vietnam were Western. And I think that's because uh, the culture is so different that I had a lot more in common with Western expat friends. I have a lot more local friends in Prague, though still the majority of my friends are expats. I don't know if you found this, but um, if you're an expat, or in my experience anyway, you tend to hang around with other expats because you have a lot more in common. Have you found that? Definitely. Although I purposefully try to make local friends, it's not always easy. I mean, I lived in the Middle East for eight years and we had certain, we had a few Emirati friends. My one friend, she was the daughter of the ambassador. She and my wife got along very well and our kids played together and stuff like that. And I had a few other Emirati friends, but I mean, certainly not compared to the amount of expat friends that I've had. Now here in Panama, it's a lot easier because I think that there's not such a separation between the expats and the locals. I mean, it's not 
rare to find locals like in the UAE. I mean, there's entire suburbs that are only for Emiratis and then there are suburbs that are only for expats. So there's massive segregation everywhere. But in Panama, everybody's mixed all over the place. We don't have neighborhoods which are just expat neighborhoods or anything like this. So it's easier to make friends. But I'm kind of curious for not Eastern Europe, Czech Republic, what your experiences were like from the Central Europe, from from the social side. Uh, in terms of locals or generally? Yeah, in, ter- in terms of locals. Because like, I guess my... And this will will prepose my my follow up question is the language. Did you find that English was enough to get by there? Did you spend time learning the local language? If you did, did they appreciate that? You know, I'm kind of curious about all of these aspects. Um, I did spend some time learning some Czech, but I never got up to a good enough level for it to be that useful, really. If you only speak English there, it's fine. You, you'll get by, especially in Prague. If if you go to some of the smaller villages and things might have more problems. I mean, if if I do intend to stay there a lot longer, I, I will Im- improve the Czech that I know. I, I don't know if I'm going to do that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely possible just to get by with English. And then what is it like for you living in a former communist country? Have you seen that the country has changed? Has it caught up to everywhere else? Is it still have a lot of ties back to communism? What's your experience been with that? Great question, Mikhail, because I am a an ardent free market capitalist. I absolutely despise communism. We can be friends. Yes. I think (laughs) I thought you might agree with that. It it clearly doesn't work and it just crushes people's lives and soul and spirit. And you, I mean, when I first went to Prague in around 2000, there was a lot, there's a lot more remnants of communism there. Like when, when you had to get a train ticket, you'd have to go to three different offices. Then they'd shout at you. Then you'd have to go to a different level on the train station that didn't have a sign just to give like five different people jobs when you could have just bought a ticket. So back then there was, there was a few remnants of that around. Um, but I think one of the one of the parts of Prague being so far west is it's just almost all that's gone now. Uh, the, the only it's it's very developed. It's it's beautiful. You've still got the communist department blocks outside the center of town, but it just it feels like Western Europe more or less. The only possible remnant of communism that's still left, and this may or may not be a communist thing is that the service can be lacking at times, let me put it that way. Um, Whether that was because in communist times, good service wasn't rewarded, so there's no point in doing it, or whether this is a cultural thing, I've never had a satisfactory answer to that question. And you do see this elsewhere in former communist Eastern European countries. Uh, But I I didn't see that in Georgia, and I didn't definitely didn't see it in Southeast Asia. So I, I wonder if that is something to do with communism or not. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't have any thoughts on that, but I can say that as I made mistakes on where it is located, I was not thinking so much geographically. I was thinking more culturally or its ties back to communism because for me, I'm always thinking about, you know, former USSR and Yugoslavia and these countries which were communist and that kind of being a region. And now I'm so curious about the changes that are happening in that part of the world because actually in that part of the world is where we're seeing the majority of the freedom come out. Now in the West... I mean, socialism is just absolutely rampant and everything has just been completely turned on its head. And I just find this so bizarre. And I'm, I'm interested about this dynamic of how this is happening and all of the history that surrounds this. Oh, 100%. It's very interesting you mentioned that. So I was having this conversation with someone a couple of days ago. And when Eastern European countries joined the EU, there's a huge, smart, young Eastern Europeans who wanted to go to Western Europe to better themselves. And what we're kind of seeing now is the reverse. Western Europeans who are fed up with 
really high taxes, enforced socialism, coercion at work, having to say things you don't believe, all this kind of stuff. So they're coming to Eastern Europe. And, and you see, that, like Bansko, where I am now, is a tiny town in the mountains in Bulgaria. There's hundreds of mostly, almost exclusively Western uh, digital nomads here at any time. And they have uh, the Nomad Fest here. Uh, Matthias at Coworking Bansko has the Nomad Fest here, where there's like 500 digital nomads in this tiny town. Uh, and that's just here. And then if you put on top of that, you put COVID and the fact that there's a lot more remote working now, that there were a few remote workers here who wouldn't have been able to, who had corporate jobs, but they were able to work remotely. So they're able to do that now. So yeah, we're seeing things go in the opposite direction. Now it's kind of Eastern Europe that's freer than Western Europe. Well, and I've seen it as well with Latin America. I'm based out of Panama and Central America used to be absolute banana republic backward countries. And now you have so many wealthy people from the United States and Canada trying to escape socialism. And they're fleeing down to Panama and Costa Rica and Belize and Mexico and all of these countries. It's just so wacky to see. But let, let's get into Bulgaria a little bit. What has your experience been like there? Why do you think that you want to leave Czech Republic and relocate over to Bulgaria? I'm curious about all of these pieces as well. Um, I haven't made that decision yet, but I'm considering it. One huge thing here, and I think why a lot of expats live here, is the tax rate. There's just a, a flat 10% tax rate. And corporation tax is also 10%. So that's pretty nice. And somehow the country still survives with just a 10% tax rate. Not sure how that happens. It's almost like our tax money is wasted in Western Europe. Almost. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Uh, it's weird. Um, but yeah, somehow they survive with a 10% tax rate. So that's nice. I feel like you get left. I mean, I've only been here for two months, so I'm, I'm definitely not a huge expert on Bulgaria. But my impression of it is you, you've got snowboarding. It's not as cheap as Georgia and possibly not quite as good as Georgia, but it's very good snowboarding. Much easier to get to than Georgia. Personal taxes low, corporation taxes low. Sofia is a reasonably nice city. Bansko's in the mountains. It's so cheap. Bansko is so cheap to live in. I'm, I'm paying it in, in, in a co-living space. And because there's such a density of digital nomads here, you have co-living spaces, which is I've actually got a video coming out with Leah, who's a co-living consultant on my uh, YouTube channel in a couple of weeks, maybe on the podcast already. And her whole job is to, as a co-living consultant co-living consultant. I, I, I didn't even really know that much about co-living. So we have maybe there's 100 people, up to 100 people living in my co-living uh, space. And there's a co-working space there as well. So they have events all the time. Co-working Bansko has events all the time. So I could definitely see myself maybe spending three to six months a year in Bansko. It's quite small. So I, I really like big cities as well. So I don't think I'd want to spend you know, every day of the year here. But yeah, that's Bansko. Sofia is a much bigger city. It's more expensive. There's more going on. And I, I wouldn't mind living there either. Um, obviously, it doesn't. I mean, the, the thing with Bansko is it has such a dense number. It's probably the, uh, in terms of a percentage of the population, probably more digital nomads than anywhere in the world, I would guess. So you go to a bar, you're going to bump into someone you know. You, you go home in the evening to your co-living space, there's going to be an event on, there's going to be a barbecue, there's going to be a film. So it's it's an incredibly sociable environment. In terms of Bulgaria as a country itself, um, it is on the edge of the EU. It's a little bit less developed than Western Europe, but, it, but it's absolutely fine. It's Prague's much more beautiful. It's, it's, it has a much more Western developed vibe to it. Um, but yeah, to anyone who's been to Eastern Europe, we're definitely in Eastern Europe here. Um, and and you, you get that feeling from it. 
And then from the COVID side, have they stayed open the majority of the last two years? Did they lock everything down and imprison their own population or somewhere in between? What has this been like? That's a great question. From what I've heard and what I've experienced, they've been very chilled. There was no masks required at all when I arrived a couple of months ago. And they had a spike and there was kind of a mask mandate and people sort of did it in shops. It was only supposed to be in shops for a couple of days and then everyone kind of forgot about it. So it's, it's pretty libertarian and chilled out. That's my impression anyway. Yeah, that is amazing because, I mean, you look at countries like Australia right now where they're going around to the pounds and executing dogs, euthanizing dogs and things like this so that people won't take a pet home with them so that they don't have an excuse to go for a walk and leave their house. Like the, the madness that's happening in Australia. I'm from Canada. I've heard that they have locked everybody up again Again, I can't believe it. And now you're not allowed to fly out of the country. And even if you are just going there as a tourist, like, like it's so weird, the things that are happening in the world. And I think when you live in some of these countries and you see it every day all around you, you kind of think that that is every square inch of the planet, that everybody is going through the same thing. And actually, it's not. These restrictions are wildly different from country to country. We just spent six months in Brazil, and where we were in Florianopolis was completely wide open. There was masks in the malls, and that was about it. I didn't see anything else. Everybody was out drinking and partying. The kids were playing soccer in the fields. Like it was normal life. Add to add, fifty uh, percent of the people were wearing masks, and that was it. So it's just so wild to hear about the different countries and what people have been going through around the world during this period. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, one of the strange things about the Czech Republic was at first they were very laissez-faire. They they had. No mask mandate. You could do no. So yeah, it's nothing. And then they went super strict for a few months, and then they went nothing again. So it's all, it's just very like really you know people in in last last summer in in Prague there were people were drinking in beer gardens. It was open like there was no restrictions. Nightclubs are open really like and everything. And then suddenly there was a spike, and then everything was shut down. You couldn't do anything. Police actually started raiding nightclubs. And giving people huge fines who weren't didn't have a vaccination certificate or a recent test, so it went from super free to you know horrendous on the on the you know in, in one day. It's really strange. And then back again. I hope that these countries learn their lesson. I mean, I am okay. I'm not a pacifist by any means, but I do think what they're doing is is violence towards us. Therefore, I really don't have a problem with fighting back at all. And I think that around the world, what needs to happen is people need to let the politicians know that this is not acceptable. And if they continue, there are going to be repercussions. We need some French Revolution here around the world because... Once again, like I am, I am a very peaceful person. I'm not a pacifist. If I get hit, I'm going to turn around and hit back. But what's happening now is just absolutely abusive. It is just so abusive. It just boils my blood. Yeah, and you're seeing big demonstrations all around the world, which aren't being covered by the media a lot from what I hear. But well, yeah, one of the interesting things about the US is because it's so big and because it's a federal system, you can contrast somewhere like Florida that's even got a lot of old people and has been open, really open most of the time to, to California, which has been super closed. And Florida seems to be doing better with infections. So, I mean, if, if that doesn't tell you that um, the lockdowns don't work and mask mandates don't work, I don't know what does. 
Yeah. And last point on this, because I do want to have some time to jump into the fire stuff and I don't want to go off too much on a tangent, although I am have a, I do have a tendency to go off on tangents. I mean, locking people indoors and then they get no sunshine and no vitamin D, which we know is one of the strongest things to support your immune system, is just criminal. It is absolutely criminal. And honestly, that is most likely why Florida is doing so well. It's the sunshine the sunshine every single day there. People are out playing golf. There's been no restrictions there and people are having nice normal life. And then everywhere else, you lock them inside, no vitamin D. Of course, they're going to get sick. They're going to get sick from anything at that point. I mean, yeah, I mean, if government wasn't so incompetent, I'd say it's a conspiracy, but I don't think they're capable of being that organized. <laughs> it is very organized. I'm not sure what's happening. Okay, let's take a quick break. Recently, I started working with a new company in the insurance field. This is health insurance for expats and digital nomads. I really like the way that this company works. And you know what? Me and my family are using it. Now, I started working with people on insurance oof, probably about a year or so ago. And I was absolutely shocked when I heard what they were paying for insurance back in the United States. Now, when you move overseas, you're going to still need to have insurance. You're not going to want to use the local state-run medical system here. You're going to want to go private. Now, don't get scared. It's not going to cost you what it would in the States. You probably expect you can pay, I would say, maybe a third or a quarter. And same thing if you're a digital nomad. If you're traveling, if you're going from country to country, you certainly need health insurance. There is no question about this. Don't think that you're saving yourself money. That is a bonehead move. Make sure you get insurance. Even if you have insurance, see what they're covering, see what they're not covering. I get inpatient, outpatient, full medical, full dental. I think it's a half a million dollar deductible, drug plan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a full, complete platinum plan. And our family is paying a quarter, a quarter of what you would be paying in the United States. So I'm really excited to be working with these guys. If you want to find out more information, all you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance. All right, to circle back around. So Bulgaria, what would be the reasons that you would decide you want to stay for an extended period of time? Or what are some of the things that you're thinking, you know what, maybe this is not for me. Maybe I will head over to Chiang Mai, like you mentioned earlier. Well, some, something I've decided to do over the next year or two, and partly because of my podcast and, and new YouTube channel, Digital Nomad on Fire, is go to all the digital nomad spots in the world and see what they're like. Because um, for some reason, there aren't that many digital nomads in Prague. Like I, I've got a great co-working space in Prague called Locus Workspace. Um, I've tried a few out there, but it, it, you think Prague would have a lot more digital nomads because it's cheap, it's very developed, the internet's super fast uh, and cheap. Um, but for some reason, there's just not that many there. So I've wanted to go around the big digital nomad hubs, spend a few months in each one, and then figure out next year, do I want to move to one of these hubs? I mean, it would be difficult to move to Bulgaria for more than three months because I don't have any passport anymore. I think Thailand was talking about doing a digital nomad visa before COVID. Whether they bring that back, I don't know. But then I, I wouldn't be able to spend more than three months in Chiang Mai. Um, although do the elite visa. They have the, it's basically a, an extended tourist visa plus an airport pass plus possibly a golf holiday. <laughs> they have all these weird random things included in their Thailand elite I think I did hear something about that about a year ago. So that, that would be an option, something like that. Or you, I think it would be relatively easy just to bounce between, uh, say, Chenggu and Chiang Mai, because Chenggu is another big 
digital nomad hub in Bali and just do three months in each and just keep rotating. And then you, in theory, you don't need a visa. I don't know if they get upset by that. So that would be another option. So really, I'm just on like a fact-finding tour at the moment. And Bansko has really impressed me. And it hasn't even been, it's just started to snow. You can see the mountains from the town now. And you can just, you can see where the ski runs are. They're just mud at the moment. And some of them have just started to get snow on. So here in the in the ski season must be amazing because you can snowboard and work. And you've got, it, you've got the just a huge number of social activities and just lots of like-minded people who are digital nomads. Lots of people who are you know, libertarians are into crypto or just embrace a lot of the same things that I do and probably you do as well. Well, and this is an important point for our listeners. If you guys have spent time in Bulgaria, make sure you guys go to expatmoneyforum.com. There should be a thread going under Nick's episode. I'm kind of curious. What are your opinions? Have you guys spent time there? Did you like it? Did you not like it? All of these things. Go to expatmoneyforum, drop your comments in there. I want to hear all of it from you guys. So, all right, so let's dive into FIRE. First of all, I want you to explain what is FIRE, and then maybe we can kind of get into your experience with it from there. Okay, so FIRE uh, for me is, um, and just just my, the, my brief history on it, I was terrible with money up until about 10 years ago. And then I was like, I've got to do something about this. So I, I read a couple of books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and The Richest Man in Babylon, which we can talk about if you like. But that 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 just got me into the basic uh, thing of live within your means, save 10% of your income or whatever it is. So that set me on that path. And that that, that alone is more than a lot of people do. Um, apparently 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 50% of Americans can't come up with $400 in an emergency without selling something or borrowing. And people, people have to work in a day job they hate for 40 or 50 or more years because they waste money on things that don't make them happy. We also don't teach financial literacy at school. Why? So that's the, that's the problem. I, I've laid the table of the problem now. In 1994, a financial advisor called William Bengen, and, and this kind of forms the whole premise of what FIRE is. He said that retirees should start out withdrawing 4% of their assets annually and increase the distribution each year by the inflation rate. So what that means for most people is if you need $40,000 a year to live, you can draw 4% of that down a year, which means you need a million dollars. Once you have a million dollars saved, you can withdraw $40,000 a year and that and the interest you get on that should replace it. That's that's the basic premise. It's just simple mathematics. That's all it is. P- people get very excited about it. They're like, oh, it's not possible for me. I couldn't. It's just maths. Okay. And then the acronym itself actually stands for? Sorry, I should have said that. Financial independence, retire early. Okay. So do you have a personal goal for being able to retire early? I have other friends who are like, I'm going to retire by 35 or I'm going to retire by 40. I think I am kind of the opposite of fire. I'm going to retire when I'm like 220. Like I love to work, but I work for myself. So it's just such a different thing. But I want to get into all of these aspects. Yeah, I think I'm a lot more like you. I, I'm... But the thing with fire is, and people get quite rigid about it. You, you just do whatever works for you. If you need, if you want to spend a million dollars a year, then save up the amount of money you need to to live like that. If you can live, if I mean, Walden, I don't know if you've read Walden. It's it's one of my favorite books. Where and it's one or two hundred years old now. Where a middle class guy goes and lives in a hut in the woods and finds out that it's absolutely fine and he can live on almost no money. So if you want to do that, do that. Like do what makes you happy. Live in whatever way makes you happy. If if that doesn't need a lot of money, then it doesn't need a lot of money. So do, build fire for you. 
I, I love what I do. I'm a freelance web developer. I'm also doing a crypto startup. I don't need a, a lot of stuff to be happy. I've never owned a car. I've got no interest in owning a car. I live in extremely cheap places. That works for me. So I, I don't, if, if I had a billion dollars now, I'd be doing exactly what I'm doing. I, I don't know if anything would change. Maybe one or two things would, but it wouldn't really be that different. So I have no reason to retire. I'm doing what I love every day. Every day I wake up in the, city, in the country I want to be in and do exactly the work I want to do. So I, I realize I'm very lucky to do that. So I, for me, a retiring date doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I, I do have enough resources saved up that I wouldn't have to work for 10 years at this point if I didn't want to, but I do want to. So uh, that's, not, that's not relevant for me. But for people who say don't like work or they do want to get to a specific fire date, and this is how fire works, you, you do the maths and you work out at my current savings rate, I will be able to reach fire in 11 years. So that's when you're saving at the rate you're saving now, including compounding interest, however you're investing that. In 11 years, I will never have to work again unless I want to. That, that's the idea with fire. It doesn't apply to me specifically, but that's what does apply to some people that do it. I think that it's a really interesting concept. It's just, it's a new one for me. I mean, I... Well, I run a financial show. I mean, this is the crossroads of travel and finance. I have a big background in finance, in entrepreneurship. But for me, it's it's so different because I like to enjoy my life. And I mean, we've talked about your amazing trips around the world and living in different countries and going out and all of these types of things. I mean, for me, that kind of stuff is really important. I don't know your experience in FIRE, but the other people I've talked to, they're like, nope, can't go out to dinner tonight, can't do this, can't travel here, can't do anything. They're living in like little one-bedroom apartments to try to save every single penny that they possibly can so that they can have the promised land one day. For me, this doesn't make sense because literally you could walk out your door and get hit by a bus tomorrow. And it's like, as morbid as that is, I mean... I want to make sure that I'm enjoying my life and doing everything that I can to get the most out of it, that I'm having all of these experiences and spending time with my friends and eating good food and drinking nice wine and all of it. What do you think? It's interesting you say that because um, I haven't met many people who are grinding through fire and hating it. I live in a, not not a bad one-bedroom apartment, but I live in a tiny-roomed flat share in Prague, and I love it. Absolutely love it. I think I would hate to live in something bigger and flashy because uh, I just don't need to do that. It, it would just, that's money I could invest in crypto. Or that's money I could invest in traveling. Um, I'm, yeah, again, if I had a billion dollars, maybe I'd just buy a, a nice flat and live in it by myself. But I think if most, if you ask most people to, to write down the top five or 10 things that make them happy, most of them are not the things that are making them in debt or poor. Now, I'm sure. When it comes to you, I'm, I'm sure you're probably doing better than the average person and you, you you don't have this problem anyway. But if you talk to the average family who you know has two luxury cars, a house that's a little bit bigger than they can afford, all sorts of subscriptions they don't use, who go on extremely expensive holidays to Hawaii every year, spend thousands of dollars on hotel bills, and then get them to write down the things that um, actually make them happy, those things are not going to be the BMW not going to be the McMansion. It's going to be hanging out with friends, having a, having a glass of wine with a friend, maybe um, inviting them over for dinner, uh, visiting your, your parents, you know, things like this that actually make you happy. So the, the, the things that make you happy are rarely the things that stop you doing fire. Maybe living in a nice apartment to some extent might be one, but 
I've lived in some really nice apartments and some very basic ones. And I find you just kind of adjust to wherever you are after a week or two and you get used to it anyway. Well, and this definitely circles back to our earlier point about being an expat, where there really isn't this keeping up with the Joneses. I think what you described is definitely like quintessential Western society at the moment. It's it's bloated, where in Latin America, we don't have a lot of this stuff. I mean, not, I mean, you can literally go down to the park at any time. There'll be people playing music down there. Someone will be having a birthday party. You can say hello. My kid like runs up and asks for a slice of cake and stuff like that. They invite us all over and you just chat and it's just nice, normal things. And it's just these human interactions, which I think are so, so important. I guess maybe with the fire, I guess what I'm worried about is that they are sacrificing so much of the good experiences to try to save for a future date. I am someone who believes in delayed gratification, and I have a lot of investments around the world, but I'm still trying to take, care, take advantage of every minute of the day and do things that I enjoy. Yeah, well, community is free, right? So, I mean, that, that's not going to stop you going to fire. Have you heard of a book called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, a book about stoicism? I, I have, yeah. I've read three or four of Ryan Holiday's books. He's... Sorry, yeah. No, this is just a great one about, um, there's a story of, I think it was Marcus Aurelius or someone, and he, he was an emperor, but he, he disguised himself and went down to live like a peasant one day a month, just so he knew he could do it if he had to. And it, it's living in, you know, Living in a, a very cheap apartment isn't as bad as you think it would be. And mo- most of the important things we like in life are free or very cheap. So w- what I would advise people to do, people who have the worries that you outlined, was write down the five or 10 things that are most important to you. And if one of those costs money or even quite a lot of money, just do it anyway. Just get rid of the stuff that doesn't give you a lot of happiness if, if it's costing you money. And th- there's probably are, there probably are a few of those things. Yeah, I think that's very good advice, very good advice. Because as you mentioned, like when you were talking about, okay, what are the things that are most important to you? I mean, spending time with my kids, spending time with my wife, spending time with my mother, seeing my friends, drinking nice wine, going out for dinner, you know, eating nice food, which, okay, costs money, but it's not, you have to eat anyways, and it's not like you have to spend a million dollars to eat nice food, especially in Latin America. If you spend on a meal, actually, you can have a phenomenal meal. And probably in some of the places like you were mentioning in Southeast Asia, you can have a phenomenal meal for half of that. So, I mean, that's a pretty good short list of the things that are important to me. And then, of course, exploring and traveling. There's, There's no question about that. But all of those things can be done at an affordable rate. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of concepts here uh, that dovetail together perfectly. And I'll just briefly listen. So you have digital nomadism, remote working and home office, minimalism, fire, crypto and investing, van life, tiny houses, and geo-arbitrage. Are you familiar with geo-arbitrage? Yeah, it's pretty much a constant theme. You, you basically just named my podcast episodes <laughs> over the last five years. You just short, you just uh, read my my uh, my interview list. I think we're on the same page. And again, so as as you just mentioned, if you're worried that eating out is costing you too much, if you're in a much cheaper country, you can eat out three times as much, and it will cost you half as much. So there, there's other things you can do to mitigate the things that are slowing down your achieving fire, for example. Absolutely. And now with the FIRE community, are there certain types of investments that people traditionally invest in? Or is it anything and everything that people would normally invest in, in, say, North America, like 
traditional rental income properties or mutual funds or anything that people would just think of when they think of domestic investing? I mean, I've I've been following FIRE for about 10 years. I think it really started around 10 years ago, maybe a bit longer, with Mr. Money Mustache, uh, Peter Adney. And I think William Bengen, the, the economist in 1994, mentioned this. The, the traditional way of doing this has been index funds. So an index fund is, take, say you take the FTSE 100 in London or the Fortune 500 in the US or something, you, you have a little bit of each of the shares and uh, they constantly rebalance it. So you don't have to uh, pick the right stocks. You don't have to be lucky. You'll get the same returns as the whole of the stock market will. You buy that, keep it for decades is the idea, and you should get about 7% return on that. But but I think that's that's changing a bit now. But I guess also from your side, things sound a little bit different, just getting to know you over the last hour. You're also an entrepreneur. You're also a digital nomad. You're putting all of these other things into play. It doesn't sound to me like you would just be doing index fund investing. Yeah, well spotted. Yeah, I have owned <laughs> index funds in the past. I don't have much in that at the moment. I, I first got into crypto in 2013. I stupidly didn't hold on to as much Bitcoin as I should have done. Um, but that, that really started me down the crypto road. So I'm now I'm like 90% in crypto. Uh, that's not for everyone. Not everyone follows crypto. You can definitely lose a lot of money in it. I'm, I'm coding on the Solana blockchain at the moment as well. So I'm, I'm very immersed in that. I'm following it deeply and I have various strategies to mitigate risk, but I am a bit of a degenerate. So I do do, do uh, you know, chancy things, but but it's fine. Like I, I have enough life savings saved up for years. So if I did lose it all, uh, it, it, I'd, I'd be fine for a while. But yeah, if, if what I would say to people who aren't immersed into crypto like this, just put 1% maybe or 5% of your portfolio in it, learn about it, put it in relatively safe things and get in that way. Will the stock market, will index funds keep returning 7% over the next 10, 20, 30 years? I don't know. We're in a very weird time. That has been the case for the last 100 years, pretty much over 10-year time spans. Whether it will keep doing that? Probably. But there are definite, it's definitely possible to make, this isn't financial advice, but it has historically been possible to make a lot more than 7% a year with crypto. And then, of course, you have things like property, um, which I'm not into yet. I'm thinking of diversifying into that maybe in the next few years. But some people like that's worked very well for people. So that works as well. It's just really about investing your the money that you save into things that will give you a return, obviously. my The thing that I'm really into is crypto and a, a few shares. Yeah, we've been into crypto on this show for pretty much since the very beginning. I think it was one of the first, yeah, the first or second episode I did on the show was about crypto and have been following things and investing myself, not since 2013, but since probably about 2016 or 2017, I guess. So have done well, have lost a lot of money, have re made a lot of money. It's kind of a wild ride. I used to try trade derivatives. I traded derivatives for about seven years, options trading. And I thought I understood what volatility was. And then I got into crypto and it was like, wow. Oh, the emotional roller coaster. No doubt. No doubt. Well, we are in good times right now. So sun is shining and let's see how long this lasts for. And then it'll be interesting to watch. So for Fire, is there anything else that you think that people should know or understand if it is something that they want to start putting into their own lives? Yeah, well, I'll just say, as I said before, um, just question is, you know, is this BMW that's costing you however much a month it's costing you to lease? 
if if you knew that that meant you had to work for five years longer before you could retire, is that worth it? Does that BMW that you get used to after a, a month does that give you five years worth of getting up early and going to a job that maybe you hate? Maybe it is worth it, but I think the thing to do is think about and. Sp- the big one for me is regular expenses. If you have a big one-off expense, like a big flat, a fancy meal or something, just a one-off, it's probably not going to harm you. But if you have a really big car payment or if your house is much bigger than it needs to be, and that's the kind of thing that will keep you working in a job that you possibly hate for decades. And even if you don't hate your job, financial independence retire early doesn't mean you have to retire. It just means you have options. It means you could retire if you wanted to, or you could spend, take a year to learn painting. Or you have freedom. I think money, as many people have said, is just something that gives you options. So if you can get to financial independence, you could retire early or you could do something else. So just think about those big regular expenses. It's easier to live in a smaller house than you think it is. And what, what people often tend to do is they they buy a small, smallish house when they're young and then they have kids, they get a bigger house and then a bigger house and then a bigger house and you end up with 50 mortgages or you end up just never being able to get out of debt. So just just take a bit of time to think about those big regular payments and what's more important to you, retiring, being financially independent in 10 years or having an extra three bedrooms. If it's having an extra three bedrooms, great. I mean, I'm not telling anyone what to do. Just just make that make a deliberate decision. Well, after all of this, I might actually be fire myself because I do like having money in the bank. I do like having my investments very, very much. And I don't drive a car. We don't have a BMW or anything like that. Uber, Panama, about $3 to go across town. You don't beat that. It's nice to live in a country with no taxes. We legally pay no taxes. And cost of living here is about half of what it would be back home. And nice life. I mean, I work every day and I work like a fiend because I enjoy it. I mean... I don't work for anyone else. Of course, I'm an entrepreneur. I have my own business. I mean, this podcast is just a piece of the business. But it is interesting hearing all of these types of things because actually as you're speaking, I'm like, actually, that does apply to me. This also applies to me. I guess part of my negative connotation that I had before was possibly because of just a couple that I met and the way that they were living their lives opposed to an actual indication of fire ideology as a whole. Yeah, and actually, one one thing I haven't mentioned yet, which is a video that's just come out on my channel and should be out in the podcast feed soon. I'm trying to synchronize those. Is the idea of being cancelled and being cancel proof? So if you don't have any savings and uh, your your employer coerces you into saying things you don't like at work or doing things you don't want to do at work, you have no savings. You, you have no emergency fund. Uh, you're you're not. You're just living paycheck to paycheck. You can't tell them to get lost especially if you have a family and people depending on you, you you have to just take it and you have to keep compromising your morals, maybe even depending on the situation. So it's, it's just getting to a point where you can uh, do what you think is right uh, is just, just a great place to be in life and not being able to be coerced by money. I think it's super important. And on that note, I think it is a perfect point to wrap up today's episode I love the conversation. Thank you so much, Nick. I certainly learned a lot of things myself and you had me rethink some of my preconceived notions about all of this. So actually, I think I am a fan. I think this is very, very interesting. If my listeners want to find out more about you, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? If you go to digitalnomadonfire.com, my stuff's linked there, or search Digital Nomad on Fire in YouTube or in any podcast app. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much, Nick. And I will talk to you soon. All right. Cheers, Miguel. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed the interview. I certainly had a ton of fun recording it for you. Now, if you are listening to the podcast and you're hearing this message, then what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash YouTube, and you can actually check out the video of the interview that you just listened to. We're now putting out all of our interviews on YouTube. This is brand new for us. We just started a few weeks ago. We're going to be doing, hopefully, all of our interviews going forwards on YouTube. But more than that, we're going to be creating original content on YouTube. So as I go out there and travel the world, as I build my business and visit foreign real estate and foreign gold vaults and stock markets and different projects around the world, I'm going to do my best to film everything and create original content, which will only be found on YouTube. So if you guys want to show your support, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Very important. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and check out all the original content that we have going on there. It's completely free and we really appreciate your support. That's it. Have an amazing week. I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. We got an awesome interview coming up and I hope you enjoy. Okay. See you next week. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.